Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic, and this week we'll be going on a journey from the mountains of Chile to the dark underbelly of Washington, D.C. I also sat down with Makita Brotman, who wrote a lovely piece for our website on the ivory cages that imprison Jane Austen's heroines. She'd just published a book on a very different kind of prison. And then Idra Novi will take us to Chile and talk about a short story that she wrote for us this spring. And I promise, after you hear her read, you'll never look at a chicken the same way again. But first... We're checking in on a works-in-progress piece that I reported for the magazine last year, set in the heart of Washington, D.C. So let's take a trip down the block from the Scholar office and escape the heat a little bit in the DuPont Underground. Above ground, you wouldn't even know it's here. Underground, you completely lose sight of what's above ground. Know much about it, you must it. <laughs> I don't know anything about it. But... I, okay, what I've heard is that it's all of the walls from the beach last summer. The exhibit she's talking about is The Beach, which took over the atrium of the National Building Museum downtown and turned it into a giant, well, beach. There were 700,000 clear plastic balls in a football-sized ball pit where people splashed, played, and generally tried to avoid drowning. It was a hugely successful event. And instead of throwing out the plastic balls, an arts organization in D.C. called the DuPont Underground claimed them and has repurposed them for a new installation, Raise Raise. It's an interactive art installation of thousands of these plastic balls glued into cubes that you can stick together or rip apart with Velcro. It's like remixing sculpture or playing with Legos, or as some visitors have said. Being in a life-size Minecraft. That's why we're here, because she, she loves Minecraft. Thousands of people have been through these street tunnels in the past few months, work crews preparing them, volunteers assembling cubes, and visitors playing with those cubes. We went underground to talk to the artists about their work and to see what people are making with it. So to get to the exhibit, you have to walk down this weird subway entry. It's like a subway metro entrance, but painted bright red. And the temperature drops dramatically as you go down the steps. These are basically tunnels uh, for the original streetcar in Washington, D.C., and they're just in the form that they were left when the uh, streetcars were shut down in the 60s. Raw concrete platform with steel racking and raw white ceilings and subway tiles. 
So we're in the DuPont Underground with the artists behind the first exhibition for this space. It's called Raise Raise. I'm Nancy Ho. I'm a partner at Ho D'Souza with Josh, Josh D'Souza. D'Souza. I'm an architect and designer based out of New York. So we're walking in. What does it look like? What do I see? The curved wall of the tunnel is covered with a layer or a sheet of uh, plastic balls. It consists of cubes. Each cube has 27 balls. Uh, It's held together with hot glue. And then each cube joins together with its neighbors using Velcro. We're trying to show the possibilities of having a physical, three-dimensional pixel that people could play with and rearrange. What just happened? Um, It broke down. The Ender Dragon broke down. Um, They have this kind of translucent, white, hazy quality to them that kind of glows and doesn't quite look of this world. I built it a portal. Where does the portal lead? Um, To the never. It's about a city block long um, where we've taken about 10,000 cubes and arranged them into a layout that people can meander through. It's supposed to be a pathway. We're not done. (laughs) Rainbows and a beautiful sky. We really like this idea that it changes over time and that with every wave of visitors, something new would happen. A hollow cube. Letter B. You get these waves of particular objects that people are interested in building. It's probably going to look like an eight. Like kind of keeping up with the Joneses of sculpture, I guess. I can make out an R and an E. But then you get these oddball originators. They're the beginners of, you know, the dinosaurs or giraffes or whatever's on their minds. What are you guys making? Trying to make a bridge. A bridge to where? To the other stack of balls. (laughs) There are people who went on dates here and met each other here and hooked up. When you have a group of people that large, all sorts of things start to happen. I have no idea what he's doing right now. Aww little heart. Yeah, yeah. Like that? <laughs> Good job, Mr. Engineer. Thanks. The installation wrapped up last month after a sold-out run. But don't fear, they'll be opening the doors again soon for the next event, which you can learn about at dupontunderground.org. Makita Brotman usually teaches college undergraduates. But for her new book, she wrote about teaching a very different kind of student a group of convicts at the Jessup Correctional Institution in Maryland. In the Maximum Security Book Club, they read everything from Heart of Darkness to Lolita and Macbeth, in between lockdowns, factory shifts, and stints in solitary confinement. Makita has been meeting with the inmates for the past four years, and the Maximum Security Book Club paints a picture of what it's like to teach Kafka and Conrad to convicts. Hi, Makita. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Sure. So um, are you still running the book club? We're taking a break for the summer, but I intend to continue. And how did you get started teaching in prison? I started in 2012. I had my first sabbatical in spring 2013, and I've known people who taught in prisons, and they've said that it was really satisfying and enriching and um, I was interested in in that, but because it was my sabbatical, I also wanted to focus on the books that I loved, but do something different, teach a different kind of audience. So it was kind of not as altruistic as it sounds. And how did you choose which books to read? Well, I started out with the books that are like my favorite books because I was going, this was going to be something that 
I knew that they would struggle with, but I struggled with these books when I first read them. But I was 18, 19, and these these guys were like between 28 and 67. So they hadn't had as much education as I had, and they didn't have as much literary background as I have, but they had much more worldly experience. So I thought I could be, like I had a really great teacher who made me see things in these books that I didn't see myself. So I wanted to be that kind of teacher to these guys. But it didn't turn out that way. I, I wasn't that kind of teacher. I wasn't good enough. And they weren't as interested as I thought they would be. Yet um, they did find, I mean, they, they taught me things about the books that I wasn't expecting them to. Like when we were reading Bartleby, for example, they weren't, they resisted it. They really resisted it in a way that my ordinary undergraduate students don't. I thought about it. Bartleby stands looking at this wall, engrossed in what the narrator calls these dead wall reveries. It's not surprising that men serving life in prison don't want to read about someone who stands staring at a wall all day. It's quite natural that they would resist that. And I realized I'd been making the wrong choices for the wrong reasons. So that's when I switched over to books that they'd found more enjoyable, like Bukowski's Ham on Rye. Did you have any misgivings about starting out with such dark literature like Heart of Darkness at the very beginning in, you know, a men's prison where people are dealing with all of these issues of loneliness and suffering and addiction and pain already? For me, that book, again, was difficult to get into, very difficult to get into. But now, every time I read it, I seem to find things in it that I hadn't found before. And to me, it seems like the loaves and the fishes. It's like magically renewing. And if I were in prison, it's like a book that I would like to have with me because it's like a really difficult piece of music that you have to hear again and again and again to start to understand it. And that's what I wanted to give them. But they just resisted it. And and quite understandably, these are very dark books with very dark themes. And what happened was we started to, they started to go on all kinds of sidetracks. And at first it was hard for me to um, to let that happen because I was used to classroom teaching and you know, sticking to a syllabus and learning objectives and so on. But after a while, I just relaxed and let go. And um, that's when things started to get really interesting. Everything that happened in the books would remind them of crimes that someone had committed in prison or a guy who used to be in the prison or something they'd heard or seen or experienced. Especially when we were reading The Metamorphosis, they would talk about how they identified with Gregor themselves. They, all, they felt like parasites and they felt like they'd been transformed overnight. Um, when they were in prison and how difficult it is to accept that you have now been given a life sentence, that you are now a murderer or a rapist and stigmatized by society and transformed into something else. And when you can't take on a huge transformation like that, you go into denial and you tend to focus on something small, like Gregor worrying if he's going to be able to get the next train in time, despite being turned into a bug. And one of the guys talked about how when the judge gave him his two life sentences in court, all he was worrying about was like, what's going to happen to my tapes and my records in my bedroom? And like, what, who's going to feed my dog? And like, you just can't take in the, you know, the enormity of, of the transformation. Were there any books they just didn't relate to at all or just couldn't find any sympathy for either the characters or the narrative? For a while, I thought that they were going to veto Lolita. I felt like I was really naive looking back to have selected that book. I thought... Again, very naively, they'd see Humbert Humbert as an outsider like them. And I forgot that they would see him as 
a pedophile, and pedophiles are the scum of the earth in prison. They could not read the book without focusing on the pedophile and the pedophilia. And I never even thought of Hamlet that way. You know, I thought of this as a love story, a very complex love story, but they saw it as a very simple story of a man who sexually abuses and rapes a young girl. And in the end, I came to see that they were right, you know, that I had been foxed by Nabokov's fancy language and um, I was the one who'd fallen in the trap and they're the ones who could see right through him. It happened again and again that I realized that the more I read, the less I knew. The same with Bartleby. I mean, their attitude towards the book was very Bartleby-like. It was preferring not to. You know, they were Bartleby's themselves in a way. And so, yeah, they did shed light on these pieces of literature. And I realized that I was coming at them, particularly with Lolita, in a very kind of privileged way. Which book did you think was most successful in that case? And you can define mm. success however you feel. Well, I think Macbeth was probably the most successful piece of literature because I got them to read Shakespeare. And it was difficult. We had one of those texts that had a translation on the opposite page. So we were not reading in the original, but I got them to read some of the original and because they each had a part, so they were reading aloud, and that made it much more engaging. They were very pleased and proud of themselves to have read Shakespeare and enjoyed it. And it was really fascinating for me as well. Like during that murder scene, I was thinking, you know, I've read this play so many times in so many different groups of students. But these guys, like most of them had committed murder. And to see it through their eyes, to get the sense of like Macbeth's nervousness and what he was doing wrong and how affected he was by his wife. And um, when Macbeth was um, getting really nervous about the murder and wishing he hadn't done it, one of the guys looked up and goes, he's going to turn state's evidence. <laughs> and turn in Lady Macbeth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so did you have any assumptions going in about what prison life was like or what these prisoners would be like or how they'd respond one of the reasons I picked the books I did is I assumed they'd have lots and lots and lots of time to read, you know, life in prison, what better time to read the classics. And then I realized that that wasn't, that was completely untrue. The guys who had jobs, which is most of these guys, many of them had to get up at four to, to like start the breakfast shift in the kitchen or to get up at six to work in the factory. And they actually had much less time than my undergraduate students do, even though their time's pretty full. And then everything you have to do, like you stand in line to have a shower and you stand in line to use the phone and you have to stand in line to go to the commissary. And even when you are in your cell, there's like a television playing or some your, your cell might, might be playing a really loud video game and there's noise constantly even at night. And then there's like bright lights and you might need that time to work on your legal case or to catch up on your sleep. So it's, it's surprising that they did actually do the reading because um, they actually didn't have very much time to read at all. When you're teaching Heart of Darkness, yeah. you write that what Conrad shows us is our inability to make each other understand our experiences. Do you still feel that way four years into the book club? Do I still feel that? Yeah. He has this line, um, we live as we dream alone, and that we can't, that language fails. I mean, it's all we have, but it fails in the end. We can't communicate our experiences to each other, but we're still compelled to try and I think, you know, I, I feel writing this book, I don't know what it was like to be them. And even though I went over the book with them chapter by chapter and they made changes and they made suggestions, I still feel like I haven't really conveyed the complexity of their experiences and the, of their lives. And, and I don't fully know them. Um, but 
I'll never read these books without thinking about these men and their, what they had to say about them. Well, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Well, thanks for having me. What do a headless chicken and Pinochet have in common? No, that's not the start of a horrible joke. It's the start of Idra Novi's short story, Under the Lid, which she published with us this past spring. It's set in the dying days of Pinochet's bloody dictatorship in Chile. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining me for the podcast. Thank you for having me. So both your novel and the short story you published with us are set in South America. And you've lived in Chile. You've translated South American writers. Where did your love affair with our neighbors to the South begin? Ah, well, in college, I went to the comparative literature department, and I was interested in how innovations move from one language to another. I had traveled a lot. Growing up, my dad had friends in Puerto Rico, and we went and visited him there, and we went to the Dominican Republic, and he spoke Spanish. So, And we had exchange students when I was growing up, um, one from Brazil and one from Argentina. So Latin America was always something that I felt comfortable with because I had these exchange brothers and sisters from Latin America, and I also had traveled there extensively my whole childhood. So I think I just felt that global literature always seemed truer and more fascinating to me than reading in a national way. And um, when I got to the comparative literature department, I started taking classes in Spanish and Portuguese. And I just discovered that those books were the ones I was really excited about. And I ended up going to travel to uh, Chile for a semester abroad. And um, as happens many times, I, I found translators. I, I fell in love uh, with a Chilean and we've now been together for 18 years. So I, you know, 20 apartments and two children later, I'm still going back to Chile. And do you feel like how we read writing and how we read literature in America has become more international over the past 20 years? I think so. I think there are a lot more presses publishing works in translation. I think there are more writers writing in English who have lived abroad or um, are we're celebrating novels that represent a more international perspective. I, I think like the notion of a post-national writer um, used to only basically mean an immigrant writer, you know, someone who was born in one place and lived in another or an exile writer. But I think there's a lot of post-national writers who maybe have come to be post-national uh, in a way that's not determined by political leaders. You know, I, I know that the the poet Charles Simic says that Stalin was his um, travel agent because he kind of <laughs> determined where he lived. But, you know, even if you don't have, you know, a, a tyrant as your travel agent, I think that more and more there are writers who say that they want to have a post-national life or that they want to be part of a global dialogue. I know that's certainly true for me. So Under the Lid is set at the twilight of Pinochet's regime. So what's the political climate of Chile at that time? I called the story under the lid for a reason, because I think there was a lot of steam that had built up and built up and built up, you know, and I've lived there a long time and I go back a lot. I, I got to sort of see this progression into democracy that happened in Chile. And I think even though, you know, the dictatorship went on for 17 years and it finally came to this vote that's portrayed in the story where everyone in Chile got to vote and say whether they wanted to have Pinochet step down and have an election for the first time in 17 years. And that means an entire generation 
of Chileans had never voted. The Chilean writer Alejandro Sambra has, has written about how in Chile, no one actually called it a dictatorship. It was just seen as a government. And there were these sort of, you know, um, looked like elections, but not anything for the president, sort of local things. So I think that that made that, that twilight and the conversation. There was all these people who in the country who supported Pinochet. And there was a huge divide between people in Chile who saw themselves um, as Pinochetistas and people who were violently against it and had relatives who'd been disappeared. So there was a lot riding on that vote. So it wasn't like in Argentina where the dictatorships kind of came in spurts and then there was democracy between. In Chile, it was a long haul. Did you get a chance to talk to a lot of people really active in the political scene? Yes, absolutely. Um, my husband went to all of those protests and his sister was a leader in the protest. So I shared this story with her because I remember one time we were like all camping somewhere and she told me that the reason why she w ended up working for the Chilean government for so long uh, was that she had this unique experience of fighting for a change and saw it happen. She wanted to change her country, and she did. And I kept thinking about that. You know, you see a generation really getting involved in social change and how rare it is for that change to come to pass. But I think when it doesn't come to pass, that that also marks you. But this is a generation of activists who saw the change happen. And I think that's really powerful. Do you feel the need to get your stories fact-checked by your Chilean relatives? I do. Yeah. And I actually showed this story to my sister-in-law and I showed it to uh, a close friend of mine who's a writer, Andrea Maturana, who's a Chilean writer. And we've been she's a close friend of mine for about two decades. And she read it and lived through that era. Also, that was their generation. They were in college um, at, at the end of the dictatorship. And they both said that, you know, I got everything right. And, and one one of them actually um, said that she didn't think that that chicken incident would happen in Chile, that maybe would happen in Bolivia. And I was like, but it did happen. And she's like, well, see, you know, my country as well as I do. So we, we actually laughed about it because I think it's important. I want to write something that rings true. And I think when you're writing about a culture that isn't your own, or even when it is your own, you don't want to inadvertently traffic and stereotypes or misrepresent. And, and it made for these really meaningful conversations. I felt like sharing the story with my sister-in-law actually led to conversations that I think we wouldn't have had otherwise. And it brought us closer. Could you talk about the role of brujeria or black magic or magic or superstition of any kind in Chilean culture at this time? Well, this story was based on something that actually happened. Um, my husband works in textiles and um, he, one of the factories that creates the textiles in, in Santiago, um, there was a, a witch who was basically blind, a bruja. And when she was fired, she did put a headless chicken on the door. So the story actually came from an actual incident um, that, that, that happened in Santiago. And they did call in these other brujas. Uh, for these counter curses. And when I heard this story of this, you know, this sort of man who would consider himself, you know, that he didn't believe in brujeria, but his employees did. And, and, and he would have to sort of deal with in, in the class that came, the class issues that played into this and, and what these brujas would think of um, coming into this factory and, and being involved in all of this. Um, it fascinated me. And, um, so that was where the story came from. It actually, uh, this time when this uh, this incident happened with this bruja in Santiago was more recent. I chose to move the story to this period in Chilean history that I've been really uh, 
interested in exploring as a writer. So I kind of combined two things. But Brujeria is, is, a, is a huge part, I think, of Chilean culture. And it actually does transcend class very much. So um, I remember when I was pregnant, uh, one of my husband's aunts said to me that it would be she there was a bruja she recommended that I should go and see before having a first baby. Um, and I just know a lot of people there who continually consult with brujas. And, and it's just a part of life there, I think, for a, a lot of people. And since I didn't grow up with that, I always ask about it. And I was I was really fascinated to learn more about it and, and think about um, what role that played in people's lives. And it's separate from um, what, the dominant religion. Yeah, it's a Catholic country. Chile is a Catholic country. There is no separation of church and state. Catholicism is definitely the the religion through line in in Chile. So the brujeria thing, I don't think a lot of people who are Catholic even would would be involved in brujeria in a sort of nominal way for sort of discreet things like this chicken incident. It wouldn't be seen as sort of counter to being Catholic. So it's like a form of animism that was swallowed up and embraced by Christianity. Yeah, I think it's just seen as this parallel part of culture and something that you turn to if you do feel like maybe a, a bunch of bad things have happened to you and you, you want an explanation for them. You know, I had a relative who had a son who kept getting sick over and over again, and they didn't know why. Um, this was recently. This was like a year or two ago. And so they took him to see a bruja, and she had some advice for them, and they took it, and then he didn't get sick again. This is a family that, you know, the father was a doctor. People who I think maybe were skeptical about other things have this sort of... Um, in, you know, intrinsic faith in, in brujeria in certain situations. And so it was just something that I, I was fascinated in, in writing about. And then when this incident happened with this headless chicken on the door, I, I knew I had found the source. Well, without further ado, do you want to start reading your story? Sure. Under the Lid. Now that Gustavo had crossed the parking lot, there was no denying what was nailed to the front door. It was indeed a headless chicken, waiting for him at the only entrance to the upholstery factory he'd inherited from his father was a bloody feathered messenger of revenge. Twenty feet away, his employees were all cowering by the dumpster. I told you there'd be problems if you fired her, his floor manager, Luis, said. If you hire a woman who's involved with black magic, you just have to wait until she leaves on her own. I waited ten years, Gustavo said. She was never going to leave. His father had been the one who'd hired Mirla and joked that the old witch would likely outlast Pinochet. When Gustavo took over the factory, Mirla was already 60 and so nearsighted that she couldn't catch even the most basic error in a weave. He bought her a magnifying glass and she'd made a point of staring at him through it whenever he passed her desk, the lens exaggerating the menace in her eye. For a decade, he'd ignored this daily act of hostility, but it was now 1987 and like everyone in the country, he was getting restless. His daughter was marching in every protest. Along the Walden homes he passed on the way to the factory, the new graffiti was read and said, Now, now, now. In the factory, the only place where he had any control, the ancient witch he'd inherited kept falling asleep, snoring over the rolls of fabric at her station. I see you straining, was how he put it the day before, when he called Mirla into his office to let her go. As he told her about the generous pension she'd received, she kept her old face still as a glass of water. He thought she was taking the news well, was maybe even relieved, until she leaned forward and told him he'd been a naive, pimply little fool his entire life. When you were a boy, she told him, I watched you float along behind your father through the factory, and I knew you'd never see more than the most obvious consequences of anything. 
Gustavo had responded with a controlled, wary smile all Chileans of his generation mastered at an early age. He resorted to that same clenched smile now as he approached the door, ignoring Luis and the other workers pleading with him not to get any closer. Only another bruja, they said, could counter Mirla's curse and take the chicken down. But Gustavo went right up to the hacked open neck of it to where the rusted nail passed through its throat. Another year, he would have had the restraint to step back and oblige his employees. But his daughter was risking her life in every protest, and he was barely speaking to his wife. And before he could think it through, he grabbed the limp dead thing by its leathery feet and tore it off the door. He heard his employees gasping in horror behind him, but it was too late. He was already in motion. With one resolute flick of his arm, he sent the chicken arcing over the parking lot, blood-caked feathers falling in its wake. To see that awful, headless animal aloft, to know he was the one who'd hurled it, felt glorious. It felt like every true thing he'd never yelled, ugly in the air. And then, just as swiftly, it was over. The chicken fell with a splat on the pavement near his Mercedes, spraying bits of cartilage and intestines over the hood. Maria Paz, his secretary of many years, began to weep. I don't know what that was about, Luis said, but if you don't call in another bruja right now, none of us is ever going back into that factory. And so their appeals to the brujas of the region began. The first two Luis tried didn't answer. The third refused to come. While Luis returned to the payphone at the end of the lot to try to reach a fourth, lesser-known witch, the wind picked up, swirling the loose, bloody feathers closer. Gustavo fisted his hands in his coat pockets. Before long, the damp feathers were going to blow into their faces, and poor Maria Paz would surely faint. She would collapse on the concrete and cut her head open. They'd have to call an ambulance, which would mean a police report, and who knew what government list his daughter's name might be on by now. Gustavo cleared his throat to say something, anything, when Luis shouted, Listo! A witch was on her way. She was the sister of his aunt's older neighbor or someone Luis knew even less than that. But what did it matter? If there were credentials in the field of counter-curses, Gustavo had no idea what they might be. Twenty minutes later, their salvation arrived. Her name was Rosario, and she smelled of marijuana. She looked no older than 25 and possibly pregnant. Gustavo offered her his best counterfeit smile as he paid for her cab. I'm so glad you could come, he said, and on such short notice. I'm here for them, she motioned to his workers. Well, I'm still grateful. Rosario nodded, surveying the feathers blowing around in Gustavo's well-cut coat and the traces of intestines shriveling up on the hood of his Mercedes. A million pesos, she said, the cost of several root canals or a questionable second-hand car. With the meekness of the damned, Gustavo pulled out the blank check he kept folded in his wallet and asked for her last name. After that, it seemed Rosario Fernandez was going to leave him out of it. She'd exited the cab with a dented copper pot swinging on a chain over her shoulder like the strap of a purse. For several minutes, she took her time lighting whatever was inside it. Once she got the pot smoking, she began to swing it in circles and make her way around the parking lot, murmuring counter curses under her breath or maybe the alphabet, the smoke fading in halos behind her. When she reached Gustavo's car, she stopped and motioned for him to approach. You need to brush those scraps into the pot yourself, she said and he mutely obeyed. What other choice was there? He had to get everyone back inside. If he'd been born into another family in another country, he might have become an astronomer, he liked to think. A man who approached a window knowing about the stars instead of the cost per yard of the curtains. All he'd ever done was feed yarn into looms, and now 30 of his employees were waiting for him to scrape the last globules of intestines off his car with his fingernails. And what you threw, Rosario said, place it here in this bag. Slow with self-pity, Gustavo plodded across the parking lot to what remained of the chicken, praying this would be the end of it. Although, the end of what exactly, he wasn't sure. 
What he did know was that he would never tell his wife or daughter about any of it, not about the fear on his workers' faces after Rosario left, or how carefully they avoided his gaze as if he were an agent with the government Sinister Central Nacional de Informaciones. Okay, vamos, back to work, he said, not intending to imitate his father's clipped way of delivering orders, but there it was. Maria Bas, let's get some coffee going, yes, please? On his drive home for lunch, Gustavo told himself that the events of that morning were meaningless. Only the uneducated believed in curses and black magic. He'd done nothing wrong. He had kept his father's employee on until she was 70 years old and so blind she could barely find her desk. Yesterday, after firing Mirla, he'd arrive home for lunch feeling triumphant. The maid had prepared fish stew, as she always did on Tuesdays, and his glasses kept steaming as he told his wife Fran about finally letting the old witch go. He'd waited for Fran to roll her eyes as he recited Mirla's insults, but she hadn't. His wife had looked at him with pity. Who the pity was for, himself or Mirla, he couldn't tell, and he didn't ask. Of their 18 years of marriage, 16 had passed under the lid of the dictatorship. Unasked questions between them had come to feel necessary, even natural. Eventually, Fran had inquired if he thought their daughter had gone to any of her literature classes that week at the university. Gustavo said he didn't know. The truth was that he talked to his only child all her life as he would have talked to his son, and they were paying wildly for it now. Elena had become a fearless loudmouth and, he suspected, an increasingly visible leader in the escalating protests for the vote. She told him so little now, but enough to know she hadn't gone to any classes since the Monday before last. She still trusted him like no other daughter he knew, and as with any beautiful intimacy, there was someone who was aware of it but not included, and that was Fran. As for the lunch awaiting him today, it would undoubtedly and most unfortunately be pastel de choclo. Wednesday was the only weekday Elena joined them, and it was her favorite dish. The pie was mostly ground corn and sautéed onions, but their maid liked to add chunks of chicken. Lots of chicken. When Gustavo arrived late and bewildered, Elena and Fran were already arguing at the table. Elena's hair looked particularly dirty, her bangs hanging in greasy lumps over her eyes. She was as delicately boned and pretty as her mother, but she didn't care about her appearance. Across from her, Fran, in her impeccable makeup and coral lipstick, was pleading. But why do you have to spend the night at your friend's house again? Why can't you just come home? Well, because it's easier if I don't, Elena said. Easier than what? Easier than this futile conversation, for example. Elena stuck her fork deep into the pie. And because I'm not going to spend the rest of my life living in a dictatorship. Oh, her mother said, and you really think you and your friends are going to make it end any sooner. Do you ever stop and think about Juan Manuel's parents waking up every day and not knowing if he... But my, nobody's been shot from a car in months. Oh, months. Well, that's certainly reassuring. Don't you think so, Gustavo? Poppy, Elena reached over her hand. Why are you staring at your pie like that? Are you okay? That night, without Elena in the house, Gustavo and his wife carried on with their separate rituals. Fran took her sleeping pills early. Gustavo wandered in and out of his daughter's empty room, worrying over her belongings as if they were the beads of a rosary. He read the titles on her bedstand, which were never the book she was supposed to be reading for her classes. There were poems by some woman named Pisarnik. Under that lay a little beat-up book called Howell. He opened it. Holy the cocks of the grandfathers of Kansas, one page began. He'd done fairly well in English, but couldn't fathom even a single possible meaning for the sentence. His daughter never read anything now he could discuss with her the way he had when she was in high school. How he'd loved those evening hours at the kitchen table, discussing the renegade essay she was writing in secret for her literature teacher. It was no surprise to me, she wrote at 16, that Maria Luisa Bombal's protagonist gets lost in her own woods. Isn't that what Chilean society asks women to do with their adult lives? The following year, the teacher was fired, and the school wouldn't tell them why. Elena had been devastated, and Fran furious with Gustavo for all of it. 
but especially for what Fran perceived as Elena's new determination to find more conversations like the one she'd had with her teacher. You've given her a hunger for the company of people who don't know how to keep their opinions to themselves, Fran said, for risk-takers who end up shot in ditches. Gustavo told his wife it was just a few essays, and didn't they want Elena to have the experience at least once of being able to speak freely with a teacher? He hadn't thought at the time about his daughter marching two years later at the front of dozens of protests, of her picture in the files of every CNI agent in the region. Imagining it, his knees locked, and he had to sit down on the bed. It was then, outside Elena's window, that he saw her, Mirla. The old witch was standing in the front yard. In the faint glow from the streetlights, the blade of a butcher's knife glinted in her hands. She was mouthing something as she passed the heavy handle back and forth between her palms. Naive, her lips said, pimply little fool. Thursday morning, Maria Paz was the only one at the factory who looked up at him when he arrived and offered a hello. If the dye was off for any of the new yarns, no one came to tell him. No one came into his office to quit, either. They just kept working, filling the mill with the usual deafening click-click-click-click-click-click of the looms. His father had told him he would stop hearing it eventually, which wasn't true, but Gustavo no longer minded the rhythmic way the deafening noise blasted all day through the factory. It was familiar now. He built his thoughts around it and was considering whether he should just let everyone get a little more obliterated by the sound too and just hide out in his office for a while. When Fran called, Elena had just come home and curled up like a caterpillar on the living room rug and she refused to speak. Put her on the phone, Gustavo said. She blew out of here when I entered, Fran said. I knocked on her door, but she just wants to be left alone. Why don't you just come home a little early for lunch and talk to her then? Click, 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 click. Gustavo stared at the invoices on his desk and felt himself aging. A century of a minute passed, then a second minute that felt even longer, a millennium, after which Gustavo shot up from his desk and ducked out through the loading dock to get some air. The plot of grass out back wasn't very large, but there was a jacaranda tree his father had planted, and Gustavo had added a bench beneath it. The spot was at its loveliest in the spring, and breathing in the scent of the petals speckling the grass, he told himself Elena was probably just unraveling from the stress of all the protests, that last night he hadn't seen anything outside her window but his own paranoia. Mirla's attempts to curse him in the factory were meaningless. He didn't believe in brujeria. He didn't even believe in God. All he really believed in was his daughter, and she was mortal. At this most horrible of facts, he lowered his head and found a pair of scorpions crawling over his shoe. A coincidence. He'd never seen scorpions under this tree before, but that was no reason to assign any significance to the appearance of them now. With his other shoe, he flicked the two scorpions off into the grass and then fled from beneath the tree as if it were burning. And then he fled his father's factory, racing home well over the speed limit, pressing the pedal down even harder as he passed the walls where the red nows were already gone. Within a day, the general had sent his teams to paint over them, and with such thoroughness, it was impossible to glimpse even a shadow of where the letters had been. The blankness was so sudden in total, it produced in Gustavo a rush of numbness. But he couldn't get into a slump today. He had to arrive home ready to console his daughter. He just needed to get home, be in the same room with her, and everything else would recede into the background. He pressed his foot down on the gas until the engine shuddered in resistance. Elena was still shut up in her room when he arrived and didn't answer when he knocked. Mi amor, Gustavo said through the door, I'm turning the doorknob so you know. Elena yanked the bed covers up around her shoulders when he entered and turned her face to the wall. Her copies of How and Pisarnik he'd skimmed last night were now scattered across the floor with a half dozen other books, as if she'd hurled them. Gustavo stared at the back of his daughter's head, her tangled hair, trying to decide what to ask that wouldn't offend her or shut her down even more. When he noticed a finger-width bruise on her neck, my God, Elena! It's not what you think, she said, still facing the wall. It was just Vicente, whose uncle was killed in the stadium. 
Yes, they just found out it wasn't the stadium, she said. Someone saw him taken in one of the helicopters. He got dropped, she said. Into the ocean? Elena nodded. Vicende had just found out, and then I went and did something so careless. I could get us all killed. She flung her arm out, exposing another darker bruise on her wrist. Gustavo dropped to his knees and reached for her arm, but she pulled it away and assured him it looked worse than it was. She and Vicende had been in his basement working on a flyer when she realized she'd actually thrown out an earlier version, and at the university where they knew the CNI was going through the garbage. Vicende had gotten so angry and panicked that he slammed her against the wall and started to choke her, shouting that arrogant, entitled rich girls like her couldn't be trusted with anything. I don't think I blacked out for more than a few seconds, she said. I remember coming out of it and apologizing again. The whole night was just... complicated. She rolled over toward the wall again, making it impossible to tell if this was the whole story or the first significant lie between them. Already on his knees, Gustavo did not push her to say more. He just leaned closer, rested his head against hers on the pillow, though everything in him wanted to rage, to punch in a wall, break his own useless head. So many nights he'd come into this bedroom worrying about the men patrolling the streets, but not about the ones who drove his daughter home, not the ones she marched beside. The old bruja was right. He'd been floating, aware of nothing beyond the most obvious uncertainties. Determined not to look out the window, he rested his eyes on Elena's dresser, the web of necklaces hanging from the posts, and noticed a pendant he hadn't seen there before. It was a feathered thing, shaped vaguely like the head of a chicken. He didn't want to pull away from Elena, but he had to know if it was really there. He rushed over to the dresser and stuck his hand out, touched the feathers, the little metal beak, the dreadful plastic beads of its eyes, all of it dangling in front of him, inexorable. Where did you get this horrible thing? You mean my creepy chicken? Elena tipped her head back against the pillow. It's paper mache. An old woman was selling them on a blanket by the artisan fair. I thought it was cool. Pack your things, Gustavo ordered. We're going north. Maybe it was the surprise of it, or because Gustavo so rarely demanded anything of his family and they were curious. But Fran and Elena didn't put out much of a fight about the trip. Maybe, without knowing it, they'd been aching for it also, to get in the car and drive away from their lives. Fran even mashed up some avocados with grapeseed oil for them to dip crackers in as they had done on their trips to the beaches in the north when Elena was a child. In the factory, Fran asked as she opened the sleeve of crackers, Can you just not show up tomorrow morning? I can, he said. And if he couldn't, if he returned to find all his employees gone, all the looms silent as on a Sunday, so be it. He'd read somewhere that a woman's biggest fear was infertility and a man's to be a failure. But it was so much more unbearable than that. A woman could have a child and still fear she was the mother of no one. A man could own a factory and a fancy vehicle and still fear he had achieved nothing, except to have raised one brilliant daughter. But was it an achievement if he hadn't prepared her for the fury she might face when she made a mistake, for the people who would resent her intelligence and try to reduce her, and they would, to what her father owned, that he might become an excuse for someone to throw her against a wall and cut off the oxygen to her brain? For now, at least, she was safe in their car. They had her for a whole four days. Or maybe they could stay longer. He hadn't called to make a reservation, but hoped as it was early spring there would be any number of cabins available. The beaches in the north didn't really fill up until the summer, or so he assumed. It was entirely possible he would be wrong about this, too. As they merged onto the highway, he stared at the winding road before them with the reverence of the desperate entering a prayer tent. Stars and cacti had begun to poke out of the dark. At some point in the kilometers and kilometers of nothing between Los Vilos and Tangoy, an old woman appeared in the road ahead with the butcher's knife. He kept his foot resolute on the gas, waiting for her to vanish. But the old woman did not vanish. She remained there, hovering with her heavy knife, judging him as he drove on through her. Don't say I didn't warn you about that chicken. If you'd like to read the story, it's available online at our website, theamericanscholar.org. 
And Idra's novel, Ways to Disappear, came out earlier this year, and it's just as surreal and striking and South American as that story. Definitely check it out. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic, and I hope you'll be back in two weeks for our next episode. In the meantime, take care and stay sharp. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.